much. <laughs> she said, you're welcome. <laughs> oh, that was good. You think there's uh, any question in Bella's mind that her mommy and daddy love Jesus? I'm, um, I'm so grateful. So we're going to be in Galatians this morning. It's going to take me just a few minutes to get there. I want to set this up for you. It's a really a simple message, and I'm asking the Lord to give us great clarity in what he wants to share with us today. I believe that this is the heart of God, and I believe that he wants us to absorb this. It's kind of an Independence Day message and, uh, but it talks so much about the responsibilities, not of people in general, but specifically the responsibilities of Jesus' church here in America. And um, I, I just, I so, I so want us to get this. Children, once again, I want to tell you how glad I am that you're in our service this morning. And I know this is our Bible study time, and I'm going to do everything I can in the next hour and a half to make this as painless as possible. <laughs> I've never had a, a gift of being able to really relate or be able to speak to children. I speak and they're looking everywhere. And, and, and uh, so I'm going to do the best I can uh, to, to, to keep this simple and, and, uh, and short, and short too, I promise, I promise. Let me pray. Father God, I do believe this is your heart for us as a church family and as a church in the nation that you have provided with for us. And I ask that you would give clarity to these truths, that we might absorb them, that, that, that Lord, we each, each of us might have the heart, that we, we want to be changed by you. We want our way of thinking to be changed by you. We want to be used by you for your glory. We want to be in the center of your will. We want other people to be able to see your son Jesus in our lives as we live out day to day. I believe, Lord, that this speaks to that very, very thing, the difference that you make in a person's life. So help us, Lord, as we dive into your word. We'll praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's so many things that make this, in my opinion, the greatest country in the world. One of the things that we hardly ever, ever think about, but it's one of the things that makes our country great, is the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights. It's the first ten amendments to our Constitution. It's interesting, most countries don't have a part of their law that addresses the individual rights of people. It's one of the unique things about the United States of America. The Bill of Rights is a list of laws, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, that addresses and protects our personal freedoms. And you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Bill of Rights. You might not even understand or know. You might not even be aware of what the Bill of Rights are. I haven't listed all of them for you this morning, but in those first ten amendments, there's the freedom of speech, your opportunity to speak your opinion, whether or not anybody agrees with you, freedom of press, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of religion, 
the freedom to bear arms, B-E-A-R, that's the way it's written in the Constitution, which can be a little humorous if you think about it. You have the freedom to bear arms. The freedom to due process, a few that I didn't mention. You have a freedom to a jury trial, freedom from search and seizure, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. This is always a good one. You're free from having to quarter soldiers. You don't have to let soldiers live in your house. That's one of the Ten Amendments. And I'm glad, I'm glad that that's in there. Those who authored our Constitution and these amendments were very, very intelligent and smart people. And you might not be aware of the Ninth Amendment, but the Ninth Amendment is one that they wrote that basically says that the amendments listed here are not all-inclusive that the freedoms and the rights that you have are not all-inclusive. And so we want it to be a part of the law that you have rights that aren't mentioned here, and you, by law, can exercise those rights. It's kind of a a catch-all amendment. And if we, we wrote that amendment, or if we understood that amendment in today's vernacular, here's kind of what it would say. We or you have the right to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, as long as it doesn't interfere with anyone else's amended rights. That's what the Ninth Amendment says. My former pastor used to say, your rights end where my nose begins. And that's right. And that's kind of what the Ninth Amendment says. And so we have all of these rights here in this great, great country, but we know that it works in our country just like it works in our home, that individual rights must be coupled with individual responsibility. You know that that's true. It's how it works with parenting. If there's not a responsibility that's exercised with the privilege, then that privilege is taken away. It works like that in our, in our country. If you're a convicted felon, you lose your right to vote. It works like that in the home. If you ever had your, your car keys as a teenager, your car keys taken away from you, you abused your privilege and somehow or another and It happens with our children. They have privileges. They have rights. They have permissions to do certain things. And if those things are abused, then the privileges and rights and the freedoms are taken away. And so we have this Bill of Rights in the Constitution. But they got to be coupled with responsibilities. And so the question becomes, and this is important, why isn't there a Bill of Responsibility? We have the Bill of Rights, but there's no... Bill of Responsibility. And there's a good reason for that. Because the the, the founders, because the authors of the Constitution, the, the founding fathers assumed that there are moral boundaries that would provide a level of responsibility. 200 years ago, there was this assumption that was made that, that, that innate, that a part of who they were, that there, was, that there were these moral boundaries that would provide a level of responsibility. 
It makes sense if you, if you consider the times. They had just gotten through the American Revolution War. There was kind of this foxhole mentality. i got to watch out for my neighbor. My neighbor's going to watch out for me. We're going to take care of each other. There was a real belief in God in, in that time in the whole country. Not everybody was a Christian, but everybody would agree that it was by God's sovereignty that these, this country and these freedoms were established. They believed in the one true God, that there was a God, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and there was this sense of, of divine responsibility to this God. There were, there, there were assumptions that were made when the authors wrote the Constitution. That, that there was this consensus of a moral code. It was innate. It was a part of who they were. That there was a consensus of divine accountability that there was a consensus of, of a concern for other individuals. And it was upon these assumptions that they wrote these freedoms, and it was on these assumptions that it wasn't necessary in their minds to write a bill of responsibility. We can see examples of this in the writings of the founding fathers. A perfect example is in the preamble of the Constitution. Do you remember that? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Nobody taught you that it's self-evident. You just kind of understand that. You just kind of accept. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. The Creator is the one who supplies these rights, and these rights among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they put in the Constitution of the United States that there is a connection between God and the rights or the freedoms that we enjoy as His creation and as citizens of this great country. And to further this thought that if we could get in the minds of these authors, these writers, these founding fathers, these these who penned our Constitution, we could look at what John Adams, vice president, first vice president of the United States, served two terms under John George Washington, served as president himself, one of the writers of the Constitution. He says this about the Constitution. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. You see the assumptions that he's making there. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, if what these assumptions that we have, if they're not true, this is going to fail. It's not going to work. In other words, if there's no moral consensus or understanding and acceptance of a divine accountability, this, 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 this grand experiment of personal freedoms will fail. Because our freedoms, careful with me, our freedoms will begin to devour our freedoms. Because what happens is my rights will begin to compete with your rights. And when my rights compete with your rights, who's to say who's right? Someone said, I read this past week, when rights collide, 
Courts decide. And that's our country. And so what happens when rights collide, and we see this happening every single day, it means that our government must create law after law after law after law in order to cover every eventuality because we are always looking for loopholes in the law. It doesn't say I can't do that. It's not illegal for me to do that. So I have a freedom to do that. And that might be outside of a a sense of divine accountability or a, a sense of morality. I can do this because the law doesn't say I can't. Here's the problem with laws. Law after law after law after law. The problem with laws is law always gives us the minimum requirement. It's the least that we can do. It answers the question, how low can I go? Right? How fast can I drive and not get pulled over? How fast can I drive and not get a ticket? How fast can I drive and not have my license revoked? And we see a law and we think, how close to the line can I get and not break the law? Because the law in and of itself gives us, to us, our minimum requirement. And the law is powerless to inspire us to do what's right. By the way, the Apostle Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. But our law here in this country is powerless to, to motivate us, to drive us, to inspire us to do what is right. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Traffic laws don't make courteous drivers. Tax laws don't make generous people or financially competent people. HOA standards don't make good neighbors. So we end up with this kind of mentality. We have these law after law after law after law after law, and we have this mentality of how close can I get to it without breaking it? What do I have to do? How low can I go? Here's here's the result, that our individual rights, those mentioned in the Constitution and those which weren't included in those first ten, are regulated by law. We're free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. You can heckle the president if you want to. You can write anything you want to on Facebook. You can even protest a soldier's funeral. You have rights to do that. Rights become nothing more than an an exercise of power. If it's legal, we begin to think it's moral. Law informs our conscience. Everybody looks for a loophole. If it doesn't say I can't, then I can. Because that's void of of this idea that we have a connection between our Creator and the rights that we have. And we're void of this idea that there is this 
there's this divine accountability and we're void of the idea that, that, that we, we have this innate sense of morality that we know what's right and wrong and we turn from that innate sense of morality and we turn to our law and if the law doesn't say no, then it's permissible. That's kind of where we've, where we've come. That's where we are. And, and look, this is just my opinion. I don't think there's any going back. I don't think we'll ever go back to a sense of divine accountability, to a consensus of morality and what is right and what is wrong. I, I believe that permanently we're separated, we're, we're decoupled, if you will, from those things, divine accountability and moral absolutes. That's not good news, is it? I want you to know this morning, and this is what this is all about, there's hope. And you may be surprised when I tell you that the hope is you. The church of Jesus Christ in America today. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church that he had started. And he addressed these very things. He addressed freedoms. He addressed laws. And he talked about our responsibility to those things. Here's what he said in Galatians 5.13. You, brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. What the Apostle Paul is saying, this is how we should respond to the freedom that we have. He knows that we, what we have this tendency to do, he understands, it's why he's writing this, he understands that we have this tendency to see how low we can go, we have this tendency to use our freedoms to indulge fleshly desires. He's saying to these people in Galatia, he's saying to us today, don't ask the question, I wonder how much I can get away with. Don't ask the question, I wonder how low I can go. Don't use your freedoms to neglect what God wants to do in your life. Don't use your freedoms to neglect how God wants to use you. Don't use your freedoms to neglect what God has called you to. He has called you to a much higher standard. Instead of that, Paul says in the same verse in Galatians 5, he says, don't use your freedoms to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Use your freedoms to serve one another humbly in love. Now, if we've learned anything over the past 200 years, we've learned this. You cannot make somebody do that. You can't legislate that. There's no law that makes you serve one another humbly in love. The law doesn't force you to do that. It can't inspire you to do that. And then Paul continues this thought. In the next verse, one of the most familiar statements in Scripture, he says, for the entire law is fulfilled 
in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We have great freedoms here in this country. And we have the freedom to choose to use our freedoms to serve. And we have the freedom to choose to use our freedom to love other people the way we would want them to love us. To treat other people the way we would want them to treat us. So when I get up in the morning, I'm going to decide. Today I'm going to put others first. I'm going to think about how I can use my freedoms to serve other people. I'm not going to treat others the way I'm going to treat others today the way I would want them to treat me. Now listen, listen. What if for one day we all did that? What if for one day everybody in our country lived their life that way? Here's a suggestion. If that would actually happen, we would have no need for laws. We look and we ask, how good can I be? Instead of how low can I go? When that happens, when, when that's our heart, when that's our, our lifestyle, all of the laws, the details of the laws, the pages and pages and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, they become irrelevant when we live our life that way. When I leverage my freedoms for the sake of others, listen, the world becomes instantly better. When I leverage my freedoms for the sake of others, the world becomes a better place. And Paul goes on. This is so interesting because he knows what a battle this is. He knows what a struggle this is. And he tells them, this is God's design for you. This is God's call for you. This is God's standard for you. This is, this is how those who follow Jesus, this is how they are to live. But I understand it's a battle, and I want you to understand what the result's going to be if you don't. And so he says in the next verse, here's what's going to happen. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. I mean, in context, you kind of have to agree with that, don't you? I think that maybe one of the things that he's trying to say to us today, our greatest enemy is not ISIS. Not some foreign country, some foreign power. Our greatest enemy is us. I mean, that's what we do, right? I was here first. That's mine. I have a right to do this. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to find the best lawyer I can find. Your rights have infringed my rights. I'm going to find a woman lawyer. <laughs> and we fight, and we fight, and we fight, and we fight, and we're like a pack of dogs. And we begin to devour one another. And here's my thought. I believe it's the church of Jesus Christ in this great country, the church and only the church that can turn that around. Not by becoming a voting block, but by becoming an obedient block. 
we decide we're going to leverage our freedom to treat others the way we want to be treated. That makes sense, doesn't it? I think it's God's design. And listen, this sounds like some kind of political message. This sounds something like this Independence Day, so I got to do this. I want to suggest to you, I believe this is God's heart for us. I believe when Jesus starts talking about being salt and light, he's talking about this. When Jesus calls us to be different, he's talking about this. Listen, when he's calling us to serve other people, he said in Galatians 5, and I think it's verse 6, this is the only thing that matters. This is the only thing that matters, that your love, that your faith is expressed through love. That your belief in me, that your relationship with me is expressed by loving other people and serving other people. This is what he says in Galatians 5, 6. It's the only thing that matters. I believe this is the heart of God. Not just an Independence Day message. I believe he calls us to this. And so, here are the applications and we'll, we'll wrap up, okay? Do what's right. Not what you can justify. Not what you can get away with. But think of, what can I do to help? Does this work in our nation? Absolutely, it'll work in our nation. You know what, what else? It'll work in your home. Husbands, leverage your rights to serve others. Say to your wife, what can I do to help? And then after you pick her up off the floor... Children, you want to control your parents? Ask them this question. What can I do to help? How can I serve you? You'll have them in the palm of your hand. <laughs> the reality is, is it works. Do what's responsible. What we have a tendency to do is what is permissible, right? But do what is responsible. You know what? This would be a great lesson for our country. If you're not going to take responsibility for the decision that you're making, then don't make the decision. Congress. <laughs> be responsible. And here's the most important one. Honor God with your decisions, with your life, with your lifestyle. Understand that we have a God who's real and who's alive and who's personal and who's involved in our life. And that in that relationship that we have with the creator of this universe, that there is a part of that relationship that is an accountability and that we need to have a divine accountability in our lives. We need to honor God. Now, I want to close with this. This is John Adams again. John Adams, before he died, wrote a letter to you. He began it by saying, posterity, which means future generations. This is to all the generations that will follow. And here's what he said. 
you will never know what it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. You'll read about it in history books. You'll see paintings in museums. You'll see movies, but you'll never fully understand what it costs. You'll never be able to touch it and feel it. You'll never be able to smell it. You'll never understand the sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, I hope you'll make good use of it. These freedoms that were pinned for us with the assumption that there would be a divine accountability, that there would be a consensus of morality that there would be a, consist, a consensus of serving and loving, helping other people. And he says, if you don't make good use of it, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. And so here's the idea. Without a sense of what God teaches us in his word about morality about what is right and what is wrong, without a sense of personal divine accountability, these freedoms that we enjoy in our country, these freedoms that have been given to us by law, could destroy us. You can't turn your back on God. Now, our children, this is for you too. I know that you've only got little bitty bits and pieces of this. Moms, moms and dads, we need to be teaching these truths to our children. And they are highly capable of understanding these truths and principles. They will work in your home. They will work in your relationships. Children, these principles and truths will work in your relationships with your mom and dad, and they'll work in your relationships with your brothers and sisters, and they'll work in your relationships with your classmates. How can we as a church support our children in making these principles a part of who they are? Will we encourage and teach our children how to hide God's word in their heart? They're the next generation. Maybe they can turn this thing around. I want you to watch a video. Then I want to come up and mention just a couple of things about it. And then we're going to worship the Lord through singing. Father God, I pray that you would continue to reveal your heart to us in these matters. Watch this video, if you will. Amen. <clears throat> Awana, A-W-A-N-A, is an acrostic for approved workers are not ashamed. It comes from 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and the 15th verse. Awana is one of the, maybe the most effective children's ministry I've ever, ever known about. Our church is one of the very, very few in this city who offers an Awana ministry. We must not let it die. The challenge is not children. We got all the children we can handle. They love it. They want it. 
they're interested in it. The challenge is, is that the Awana ministry is a very worker-intensive ministry. A very low ratio. One worker for every three children. We'll have 200 children. You do the math. It's going to take sacrifice. We owe this to the next generation. So I want you to prayerfully consider whether or not this might be something that the Lord would want you to do. It's a huge commitment. Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8, nine months out of the year, it's tough. But what an investment it is in the kingdom of God. I am thrilled to be able to tell you, church family, that this coming year that Dr. Vijay Nair, his wife Christina, have again stepped up and said, we will lead this ministry. Yeah. And we know because we have watched them that they will do an incredible job. They're going to be in the lobby when we dismiss this morning. And you stop by and talk to them. They can give you all of the particulars. It's not time yet to register your children. We're going to be doing that in the next few weeks. Right now, we want to see how many children we can register based upon the people who are the adults, the workers, the volunteers that are willing to sacrificially serve in this incredible, incredible ministry. Amen? Let me invite you to stand. Here's what we're going to do. I want us to worship for just a few minutes and then I want to come back tomorrow morning we have 80 of our church family that's leaving for youth camp and I want us to have a word of prayer as they uh, as they leave and then we'll be dismissed okay Arthur why don't you lead us amen all right before we dismiss all of our children I want you to look up here at me, and I want you to know you are greatly loved. Your church family loves you, and you're important to us, and we're glad you're here. Bring your friends. We'll love them too. Children, we love you. Give them a round of applause. Our teenagers are important to us too. Man, they're struggling with stuff that you and I never struggled with as teenagers. Two or three months ago, we asked you, if you would, to sacrificially participate in some different things that we were doing to raise money so that we could send some teens to camp that otherwise wouldn't be able to go. And you worked hard and you sacrificed. And we raised $12,000 for camp that starts next week. What that means is... There are 50 people going to camp next week that otherwise would not have been able to go. And for that, church family, I thank you. 80 total from Avalon Church going to youth camp next week. There will be 330 teenagers gathered from three or four different churches uh, we partner with for our youth camp. It's going to be an incredible, incredible week. But if we rely on our own means, on our creativity, on our energy, on our plans, on, on our ideas, it will amount to nothing. We must commit that week to the Lord. And we must ask Him to do what only He can do. 
I want to thank Arthur Gongalvis for his leadership in our youth ministry and the incredible team of volunteers that he has put together. I want them to know that as they go, we will be praying all week, every day, every night for what our teenagers are experiencing. We're praying for transformation of teenagers' lives, and we're excited about what God is going to do. So I want to say a specific prayer for our camp, and then um, I'll say a prayer to close out our service, and we'll sing and be dismissed, okay? What a great group for Independence Day weekend. Thank you for your faithfulness. I love you, church, and I'm so proud of you. Let's pray together. Father God, there are no accidents in your economy. There's no chance. There's no coincidence. There's your providence. There's your sovereignty. There's your orchestration of events. Something in my heart tells me that you have been looking forward very, very much to this coming week. You have been looking forward to to young people, teenagers. You know them by name. You know what they need You know what they will hear. You know how they will respond. And I believe you're smiling about that. I believe you're excited about what will be accomplished for your kingdom next week. So we commit the week to you. I commit the workers to you. I commit the volunteers to you. I commit those who will be challenged this coming week. I ask that you would give them wisdom. I ask that you would give them patience. I ask that you would give them a burden for these teens. I ask that you would give them compassion. Lord, I ask that you would give them a heart for mentoring, a a, a heart for for changing, a a heart for involving themselves and investing in the lives of our teenagers. I pray for those teens who will be going, Lord, many with questions, many are broken, many are hurt, many are looking for answers. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge, we understand, they'll look at everything this world has to offer to fill the void in their life, but we know that only you can do that. So we ask that your truth would be made clear. To every teen in that camp, we ask that you would draw them to yourself. You would reveal yourself to them. We ask that you would put your arms around them. We ask for a transformation of a heart, transformation of lives. We ask that they return different than when they left. Fill them with your spirit. Save them. Change them. Not so it'll be more peaceful at home but for your glory to be used by you to build your kingdom. May they understand you are God and there is none like you. You are worthy of our praise and worship. We commit next week to you, thanking you in advance for what you will do. I thank you for again for this great country. I thank you for this church family whom I dearly dearly love. I thank you for their faithfulness. And Lord, as we dismiss, may we understand in our hearts, we're still the church. And as we leave these walls, this building, may we be the church in this community. For your glory is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.